I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Merisham. Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David H. Y. Kellerman, Saded 13, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Enoch, Gary, Max, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, we have a double feature right before the holiday season as we continue our exploration of the Gaza War. In the latter portion of the program, I will be joined by special guest co-host Bassam of the West Bank Robbery Podcast to speak with French documentarian and activist Frank Barat. But first, Yassine Al-Sheikh, a contributor to the publication Jacobin, joins us to give the Democratic Socialists of America perspective on the Gaza War and Israel-Palestine. And yes, we do address the controversies over the DSA since October 7th that have been covered in the media. All that and much more on this edition of Parallax Views. Let's get right to it with Yassine El-Sheikh. Welcome to Parallax Views Guests. I'm very happy to be speaking with Yassine El Sheikh. El Sheikh, how are you doing? Uh, and I should I should say in the introduction here. Sorry, uh, you write for Jacobin Descent Magazine, and uh, you were recommended to me by a uh, friend of the show, Abe Silverstein. But uh, anyways, how are you doing? I'm doing very good, JG. Thank you very much. Uh, shout out to Abe. Thank you for recommending me. Uh, happy to be here and happy to talk about uh, Palestine and DSA today. So let's talk a little bit about your background. Uh, you're Palestinian-American. What's your perspective on what has been transpiring 
not just in the past few weeks, but also uh, your reaction to what happened on October 7th and then the bombing campaign that has uh, happened since then. Uh, so sure. Um, I'm a Palestinian American who, uh, whose father and whose father's fathers uh, emanate from around the Jerusalem area who were expelled during the Nakba of 1948. Um, and my father came to this country and that's why I'm here uh, today. I'm a democratic socialist. Uh, so what I am about to elucidate upon on my view is from those two perspectives. Um, but what we're seeing, I think, since October 7th and from what October 7th was, was, as Tarak Bakoni puts it, uh, a upending of the status quo, which is this idea that you can, from the Israeli perspective, manage the occupation without a series of casualties coming through, a series of horrific attacks coming through for a long and continuous amount of time. Um, and that has been proven to be incorrect. Uh, from the Biden administration perspective, it's been proven to be incorrect that you can sidestep the Israel-Palestine issue without a political solution and expect things to be quiet. Uh, from a Palestinian perspective, it's uh, proven that yet again, like in May of 2021, what we call the unity intifada, uh, the Palestinians will not and never will remain quiet so long as a political solution remains out of reach. Um, and so October 7th was both a horrific day for Israelis and also a day that for Palestinians uh, across the political spectrum, regardless of what one thinks that Hamas did, and Hamas did horrific things on that day, regardless of what one thinks of that, was a day that proves that we're not going to be managed, that it can't possibly be managed. It has to be, there has to be a solution uh, that comes to it. And the bombing campaign in Gaza is not a solution. It is a fantastical quest for revenge. Uh, it is a campaign of ethnic cleansing where 2 million people have been pushed out of their homes and towards the Sinai. Uh, Israeli military commanders and members of the Israeli far right want to turn it into a genocidal campaign to erase the Palestinians of Gaza. Uh, but none of this will work in the end. Uh, Smotrich, a couple of years ago, this far right minister who's now the fi finance minister, he once said to uh, Ayman Odeh, of the uh, Hadash coalition in the Knesset that Ben-Gurion didn't finish the job in 1948. And similarly, they can't finish the job now. Uh, a Palestinian national identity is here. We have coalesced. We're not going anywhere, no matter what they do. And so my, I guess what I would say in a summed up sentence is a political solution is necessary. A military solution does not exist. And the Israelis and the Americans have to I'm to understand that at some point. Could you also talk a little bit about your organizing with uh, the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America? I think in, in the past two months, there's been a lot of misinformation, disinformation, and everything in between about the DSA. So could you talk about the DSA and how it has dealt with these issues? Sure. So... Democratic Socialists of America, for those who may not know what exactly we are, we are a political organization of roughly 80,000. Um, not quite a party, but we do run candidates, oftentimes on the Democratic party line. Um, we have a, unlike 
much of the mainstream of the Democratic Party, we have a pretty strong stance on the Israel-Palestine conflict. We adopted boycott, sanction, and divest, uh, or BDS rather, um, in 2017. And since then, we've been advocating for a political solution to the conflict that protects the rights of Palestinians and Jews alike. And that is something that uh, in the last couple of months has been largely swept to the side as you put it, disinformation and misinformation has been put out. Um, oftentimes you'll see people say that DSA uh, promotes violence or the DSA believes that anything is acceptable within a vacuum. But what is the stance of DSA, as far as I can put it, because I'm only a single member, but as someone who has a well-rounded understanding of our official positions and what we've been doing, DSA believes that you cannot maintain an apartheid system and an occupation system for decades on end with no end in sight, with no political solution in sight that doesn't reverberate back onto the people who perpetuate it. And that the best way to deliver security, peace, democracy, and rights for all of those who live between the Mediterranean and the Jordan, that is the sea and the river, is to end the apartheid system and to end the occupation. And in line with that thought, since October 7th, uh, we've had a campaign called No Money for Massacres that some of you may have seen online or in some reporting. I know that the Huffington Post has talked about it. I know that uh, Jacobin has talked about it, including myself and some of my writing. Uh, no Money for Massacres is a phone bank campaign. We've delivered over 300,000 calls to Americans across the country in the last two months and gotten over 20 Congress people to sign on to the Rashida Tlaib and Cory Bush ceasefire now resolution. Uh, we believe that it's necessary to do a ceasefire immediately so that we can lay the groundwork for a political solution to this conflict that ends the bloodshed once for all, once and for all. And that is ultimately what DSA's position is. If I could ask you, and I mean, we don't have to get too deep into it, but what there were a lot of op-eds that came out after October 7th of people saying, I'm quitting the DSA or why I quit the DSA. I think there was a, an op-ed in the nation. I don't know if you've read any of those pieces, but what was your reaction or response to those pieces? Uh, I have read them. Um, I think, uh, and I, I should say, in addition to being a Palestinian and a member of DSA, I was also a delegate to a convention earlier this year. And I happened to have written, happened a part of a, a team who wrote, new language for a BDS plank, uh, which uh, explicitly promotes political and social equality for Jews and Palestinians alike, and which uh, puts forward, I think, a balanced view of electoral and labor work around Palestinian liberation. And so when these op-eds came out in light of October 7th, I believe one of them was by Harold Meyerson, I believe another one was by Maurice Isserman, both longtime members, both ex-longtime members now, who were there when Harrington and others founded the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee. The crux of their displeasure, I think, um, and with all due respect to them, I think personally, is that they believe in a form of liberal Zionism that, in my opinion, never existed, but now certainly does not exist, um, which puts forward the idea that you can you can have a state of Israel, which is Jewish and democratic, 
in spite of the maintenance of an occupation that has lasted for over 50 years. I mean, we're talking about a state that my father is 52. The occupation is older than him. He has not known a world without the military occupation of his homeland. Um, my grandfather did not know a world without the martial law that existed between 1949 and 1966, before the occupation for Palestinian citizens of Israel. Uh, we're talking about a state that has never quite had what many people in the U.S., including Myerson and Nisserman, and including Harrington himself, the uh, here and our organization's founder, they never had a democracy that they have liked to envision having existed. Um, and so while I understand the discontent that they have, uh, largely around, I would say, organizational, like the issue of having a centralized organization, ultimately I think the real discontent and to, to Myerson's credit, and I think that's the nation piece. I might be incorrect. I might be messing him up. New Republic or Nation. Yeah, um, the nation piece was uh, the Isserman. piece that Isserman wrote. Yeah. Yes. And I think Myerson, I think Myerson got closer to the, to the point of contention in New Republic is that the younger generations, including myself, simply do not subscribe to this notion that Israel is a democratic state. Um, and that's a respectful disagreement. Uh, Myerson and Isserman contributed quite a lot to the history of our tradition in the U.S., but I think on this issue, they are being left behind because we're respectfully closer to the reality. Um, and I can only speak for myself on that uh, question, of course, but I think we're confronting the issue as it exists. That's my perspective. Since you mentioned uh, liberal Zionism, I've had a few guests on that I think would probably consider themselves um, liberal or, or progressive Zionists. So, I mean, I've had far more that I think would, would say they're either non or anti-Zionist, but I, I try to have uh, a very wide yeah. range on. Uh, I will never have someone that's uh, card-carrying like Hood supporter on, but that's another story. Of course. Uh, what do you want to say to liberal Zionists or uh, Zionists that consider themselves progressive? Because there are... Um, liberal Zionists that will say, well, I believe in a two-state solution. I'm pro-peace. I'm I'm pro-Palestine, but I'm also pro-Israel. Uh, what do you want to say to those people? Because I think that they believe that in their heart, but there's also, I think, reason one could criticize liberal Zionism at this point. Do you want to discuss that? Sure. Um, two things, actually. I think uh, first – I think you may have seen, I've, I saw, and I had the opportunity to read, uh, Zach Bouchamp, I don't know how you say his last name, apologies to him, the Vox piece that came out yesterday about liberal Zionism's prospective resurgence. Uh, that's one. And then similarly too, I have a wonderful friend named Max Berger, who I think used to work for More Perfect Union um, and other progressive organizations. He recently had a conversation with me about the idea of non-Zionism versus anti-Zionism. And I think both of these things come around to the question of where is left, liberal, aggressive, whatever one might want to call it in the U.S. context, where does that fit itself in this ongoing moment? And I'll say personally as a Palestinian, I care very little about the label. Um, many of my peers in my community, in my diaspora, and the exiled Palestinian community, uh, probably care quite a bit, of course. But what matters more so is skipping the oftentimes uh, 
neurotic debate about the label and getting to the brass tax, the two-state solution, for example, the one-state solution, uh, right of return. These are questions that matter much more intimately to like our identity and to our view. Me, of course, and I think all DSAers would agree, we believe Jews have a fundamental right to exist within the land that is the river, in the, between the river and the sea. But that, uh, there's not a right to a state which predicates itself on Jewish supremacy. Um, and similarly, there's no right for Palestinians to have a state that predicates itself on Palestinian supremacy. Uh, Ofer Kassif, a communist member of the Knesset, said something along those lines right after October 7th. Um, and so I guess what I would say to liberal Zionists or people who identify with the, the tradition is, is that the issue is less fundamentally about whether or not there is a place for Jews in Eretz Israel or in historic Palestine, and more of whether or not we can truly have a Jewish and democratic state, which is the formulation that uh, Zionists in Israel and now in the diaspora have used since the 1980s. I personally don't think the answer is yes. I don't think you can. Um, I wrote a piece in Jacobin calling on Bernie to uh, call for a ceasefire. And I explicitly say that Bernie believes that a state like that can exist, and I don't. Um, and I think that's the crux of the debate nowadays. I think that'll be the crux of the debate going forward as we discuss what a political solution to this conflict is like. And interestingly enough, though, that is not a debate that falls neatly along whether or not one identifies as a Zionist or not, which is uh, something that will surprise a lot of people. But ultimately, what I would say to liberal Zionists is all that truly matters is if you believe we can have a political configuration that protects Palestinians and Jews under the law. I guess you said you don't see, I guess, the liberal Zionist vision as possible. And I, I just wanted to ask, why is that? What, why do you see it that way? I think once upon a time, there was a Zionist tradition, pre-48, that sought a binationalist model or sought something that truly, genuinely believed in coexistence of sorts. Um, to the extent that that existed, uh, it was nested in some idiosyncratic, sometimes religious, sometimes not traditions within the Jewish diaspora. Um, after 1948, though, it largely died out. And I think nowadays you're seeing a, a bit of a resurgence for binationalism, but it's largely happening outside of the framework of a liberal Zionist tradition. Uh, you might see Peter Beinart, for example, his development over the last couple of years Many people have explicitly said that his shift towards a one-state model is explicitly outside of the liberal Zionist framework. And I think ultimately the reason I don't think liberal Zionism or a quote-unquote Zionist framework as it exists now is very feasible is there has never been an Israeli democracy. And to the extent that there might be one one day, it would have to be through a dramatic reversal in the historical political and economic development of the state um, towards a genuine belief in partition. Uh, there's never been a liberal or right-wing camp in Israel that believes in partition genuinely. And the crux of the issue is that most liberal Zionists in the U.S. don't actually believe in pressuring the state to adopt that. And so the logic of partition, for me personally, falls apart. Uh, I don't think it's impossible. Some people axiomatically say that two-state solution is dead. 
Uh, it's certainly dead politically, but if it were to be revived tomorrow, it could definitely be propelled into existence. My issue is that I just don't see it as preferable. Um, and I think that's ultimately where the line of division occurs. I don't see the two-state model and the liberal Zionist perspective of maintaining a Jewish majority state as desirable or necessarily very possible. How do you respond to the um, the line that's often invoked about Israel, where people will say, well, Israel is the only democracy, you know, it's the, it's the shining beacon of light for democracy in the Middle East. Just let's get into like the details. I actually recently had a conversation with a great DSA member who has a uh, has a lot of sympathy for the old guard, so to speak, Michael Harrington and the like. And uh, something that gets brought up by people who are more sympathetic to the pro-Israel position, if one were to put it that way, uh, within DSA is, well, Michael Harrington thought that Israel was a demo democracy. Uh, in 1975, he said the maintenance of this democratic state is important um, and that the resolution of this question with the Palestinians is important to make sure that it remains a democracy. And that's a respectable position until one remembers what Israel was actually like in 1975 and what it is now. A lot of people will say that it's such a shame that Israel has turned into an apartheid state. And I think that's because, well, only it's only been very recent that Selim, this Jewish-Israeli organization, that Human Rights, this organization based in Britain, I believe, that Amnesty, these organizations have labeled it apartheid. But what they right, were human actually Rights doing, Watch, Amnesty, yeah, uh, Bet Selim, yeah, yeah. What these organizations were actually doing was just coming to a conclusion that Palestinians had known for decades now. The occupation didn't spring into being when Netanyahu was elected. Uh, it certainly didn't spring into being after Obama left office. It swaying into being in 1967. And prior to that occupation, Palestinian citizens of Israel were second-class citizens outright. They were living under an ethnic-exclusive martial law from 1948 to 1966. A martial law well, they're, so they're, harsh. They're almost never – it's interesting, too, that they're never called Palestinians. They're always called Israeli Arabs. You know, it's like yes. the, the term. Oh, yes, I actually – yes. Uh, do you know who Yosef Haddad is? Have you heard of that man no, before? No, no. He's a, well, he'll call himself an Israeli Arab. In actuality, he's a Palestinian. His family are Palestinians. But he's a uh, Israeli Arab, quote, unquote, who uh, promotes Israel across the globe. He actually came to the U.S. a couple of days ago and put an Israeli flag over Rashida Tlaib's Palestinian flag in the halls of Congress. Uh, and he posted a video. And he he's one of those shining beacons that a lot of uh, Hasbaras like to put out and say, see, we have a, we have a, proud Israeli Arab community who are proud to be Israeli. Um, but on the other hand, in reality, one can look at what happened in May 2021, where the intifada that occurred prior to the Hamas uh, and Israeli war, which uh, occurred that year, there were demonstrations across both sides of the Green Line. Uh, in Jerusalem, in the West Bank, there were demonstrations in Jordan, in Lebanon, in Gaza. Um, that proved that Palestinian citizens of Israel still deeply identify with their identity as a nation in unity with the rest of the Palestinian nation. And so, yes, yeah, so 1948 to 1966, those people, those Palestinian citizens were, under, were held under martial law. Even Palestinian members of the Knesset were held under martial law. Uh, Tafik Zayad, a communist 
a member of the Knesset from Nazareth, from within Israel proper, was was forced to go through checkpoints and to have his travel monitored, even if though he was in government, even though he was in the halls of power, because he was simply because he was an Arab. Um, and that ended in 1966, but then a year later, the occupation began. And so there's not been a day since 1948 where Israel has not had a tiered system of citizenship. Israeli Jews are at the top, Palestinians, Druze, Armenians, everyone within the occupied territories who is not Jewish are at the bottom. Not very democratic. Uh, it's about as democratic as Jim Crow South or apartheid South Africa. I don't think anyone would call that democracy. If you could, could you talk more about, you know, if there are people that really do not understand the history of this, what is the occupation? What are the occupied territories? Uh, because I, I think people get confused at times. Um, even with the Human Rights Watch report on apartheid, you know, that a lot of these reports are actually dealing specifically with the occupation of the West Bank. And I, I think people need to understand what we're talking about when we talk about the West Bank and the occupation. Yes, um, I do think some people get confused often um, because, partly because, well, so what you might hear from a Palestinian in exile is that the occupation extends from river to sea. And what that means to us is that, well, we were dispossessed of our homes in 1948, and we want That's to return. That's the Nakba. Yes, the Nakba, which uh, means tragedy or... Uh, that's about the best direct translation. Um, and then there was the Nusba in 1967, which was another round of mass expulsion, about 300,000 compared to 750,000 in 1948. Um, and in 1967, the Palestinian, the occupied Palestinian territories, as understood by international law, are East Jerusalem, the West Bank, and Gaza. Uh, Gaza is still an occupied territory. It was before October 7th, and it certainly is now, now that Israel has effective military control over every parcel of land within Gaza. Um, and so if you hear someone talk about the occupied territories, that's probably what you're hearing, the East Jerusalem, the West Bank, and in Gaza. Um, if you're hearing someone talk about the entire land, oftentimes what you're hearing is talk about how we do not have a, a right to return. And the reason why that's so central to us um, is because in Israel, there is a law of return that exists for any Jew in the world, no matter where they were born, um, no matter how many generations back or lack thereof they have who have inhabited the land between the river and the sea, whether it's Israel or historic Palestine, they have a right to acquire citizenship and move there. On the other hand, I or my father, who can count multiple generations back up to dying, up to 10, who lived where within that land, we cannot apply for citizenship and we cannot go back and sue within a court for property lost in 1948. This is a clear ethnic division in the law. You, If you're ever curious about how that affects Palestinian culture, you can go look up how the Palestinian citizens, Azmi Bashara or Tafik Zaid, uh, felt about that matter. You can listen to a Mahmoud Darwish poem, uh, read Edward Said, or listen to, if you haven't listened to JD's uh, interview with Halidi, you can talk about, you can listen to some of that. So this concept of return is very important, but it does not mean that we reject Jewish presence in the land. It means we reject discriminatory law. The Adela Justice, uh, not the Adela Justice, I apologize, 
the Adela Project in Israel. There's also an organization called Adela Justice in the U.S. Um, but the one in Israel documents discriminatory laws, and I believe they have a database available online. Over 60 discriminatory laws against both Palestinian citizens of Israel and Palestinians in the occupied territories. And this really illustrates how what B'Tselem calls a unified regime of Jewish supremacy exists across both lines of the, the Green Line, both sides of the Green Line. Uh, and that's what we have today, uh, 75 years in. 56 years of occupation, 75 years into the state of Israel. It's interesting you mentioned um, Armenians, and I know they're facing a lot of, uh, well, to put it mildly, problems in yes. East Jerusalem now. Uh, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people, until I started covering it recently with a few Armenian activists, I had I had listeners that responded to that with, I didn't even know there were Armenians in, in Israel-Palestine. Can you talk about, uh, I guess, how th there's other groups that are facing oppression by these Ben Gieber-type figures and uh, the Israeli state? Yes, of course. Um, the Armenian quarter has existed for a long time. Uh, I think I saw that you did an episode about how the Armenian quarter is under growing attack by the settlers about in relation to their property uh, and in relation to church property, in relation to Armenian property. Um, there's also the Druze, uh, and these are people who are both citizens of the state within, quote unquote, within what we call Israel proper, which uh, in contrast to the occupied territories of East Jerusalem, the West Bank, and Gaza, Israel proper is the internationally recognized territory of Israel. There are those Jewish citizens, but then there are also the Druze of the Golan Heights, which are, is another unit of occupied territory, not an occupied Palestinian territory, but considered by international law to be an occupied Syrian territory. Most of the Druze there do not consider themselves Israeli, do not consider themselves members of the Israeli state. And yet, like the West Bank, the Israelis have built a settlement enterprise there. Uh, I think actually, anecdotally, I think there is a new settlement being built there called Trump Heights because of, in honor of Trump's recognition of Jerusalem as the undivided and indivisible capital of the Israeli state. Those Jews there, like the Palestinians, feel themselves to be occupied. And they are, are under international law. That's what they are. Yeah, the, and the then, Golan Heights, the, Yes, it was annexed in 81 by Israel, right? Yes, I believe so. I've, if I remember right, the same year that Jerusalem was officially unified under Israeli law. And both of these annexations are considered illegal. Uh, and then, of course, uh, something that a lot of people also don't know, and including a lot of, I would say, Palestinians or even outside of that, a lot of democratic socialists in America, something they don't know about the Jewish-Israeli society is that there is an intra-ethnic division along the Ashkenazim and the Mizrahim a lot of times what you'll see online or in discussions of how settler colonialism operates is that this is an exclusively white versus brown sort of thing. Um, and I think that misunderstands the nature of settler colonialism, that misunderstands the nature of the racial regime. Uh, there are a variety of types of Jews, so to speak, in Israel. And as of late, you've seen a ascendant far right, which is actually propelled in large part by the Mizrahim, this uh, group of Jews who were expelled from Arab countries in the aftermath of 1948 uh, from states like Morocco and Iraq. And these 
Jews have traditionally been discriminated against by the state as well, by the Ashkenazi elite of the Israeli Labour Party. But now they are entering the halls of power along the lines of Itamar ben Vir, uh, along the lines of these far-right parties. Uh, and they themselves see themselves as a superior unit to Palestinians. And so the racial regime is not necessarily white versus brown or whatnot. Mizrahim don't look all that different from Palestinians, but they have racialized themselves against Palestinians. And this is something you see across the entire world, intra-ethnic strife in Africa and Asia, etc. I just want to add to that real quick. So I, I've had guests on in the past, like um, the late Yossi Gervetz, who was... Uh, he was a, a human rights activist and pro-Palestinian activist in Israel. Uh, and th this issue always comes up of Jewish supremacism or Jewish supremacist thought. And it, it gets difficult to talk about that because in America, we have had horrible right-wing racist, uh, I'll just say assholes, like David Duke used that oh, term of, of Jewish supremacism. But the fact is, we're not talking about what David Duke's talking about. We're talking no. about what Itamar Ben-Giver actually pretty much says. He's, my life as an Israeli Jew is more important than yours as an Israeli Arab. He has said that. And I think people really need to understand that. There's no way around this issue of there being actual supremacist ideologues in Israel. Yes. Um... I believe Abe Silverstein uh, has a piece in uh, Haaretz that uh, talks extensively about this term. It had to have been published either way earlier this year or even the year before. The last few months itself have felt like years to me. Um, but uh, the Haaretz piece is a great piece. You should go read it. Uh, it's by, by Abe Silverstein. It talks about the history of this term, Jewish supremacy, um, how it's contextualized in the U.S., but also how Unlike years past, where Likud or Netanyahu would have a veneer of respectability, nowadays, Menvir and Smotrich and the like have an openly supremacist ideological project. Yeah, there, there was a time yeah. where Netanyahu would would uh, say, oh, I would never work with Ben Giver because Ben giver has been around for a long time. You know, he yes. was threatening Rabin back in the day. There was a time when Bibi would say, oh, I would never work with But now he is. And it's like, this is where we're at, you know. Yes, that's how deep things have gone down um, the rabbit hole for Israeli society. And and that's why it represents a real genuine shift. Like for, for all that I say, which is something you might see me say often if you uh, if anyone knows who I am, is, well, the meaningful political and economic conditions for Palestinians haven't really changed all that much over the last 50 years. And that's the problem. The lack of a political solution is out of reach. But on the other hand, conversely, in Israeli society, things have changed quite a bit since 1970. Uh, the Israeli Labor Party was once the ruling party with very little interruption of power for decades, and now it barely exists. There are talk of it being uh, merged into Moretz. Likewise, Netanyahu had been around for 30 years, but there was, once, there was once a time where he was not. There was once a time where he was considered fairly radical, and now he's not even on the right end of the spectrum, Ben Vier and Smotrich are. And these people are going to be around for a while as well. Benavir and Smudger are relatively young compared to Netanyahu. And they will almost certainly be in future coalitions unless something radically changes. It's interesting that you say that because the the, the thing I hear a lot of uh, people saying, including people that I've had on from 
publications like Haaretz is, well, this is the end for uh, the Smotrikis and the, the Ben-Givers. Uh, this has discredited them. And I'm just, uh, to me, I, I think it's a mistake to think that, you know, these figures are just going to go away. I mean, even uh, Dahlia Schindlin wrote a piece recently, and she's a pollster in Israel, saying, you know, the rightward shift in Israel is not necessarily going to end because of the October 7th intelligence failure. So I I think some people are way too Pollyannish about these far-right parties just uh, receding into the background. I mean, it hasn't happened in the U.S. with our far-right, so I'm oh, not sure it'll yeah. happen in Israel. Certainly. I think uh... – I remember right after January, a lot of people were saying, well, this is the end of respectability for the Trump wing. And now the Trump wing has more or less consolidated its grip, even more so than it had before January 6th. Um, I do think Netanyahu's career is probably over as soon as the war ends, which is why he's so desperate to continue to uh, litigate it. But what comes after Netanyahu is a different question. And, I, and likewise, I've seen a lot of people say, oh, well, now's the chance for a... Uh, Golan sort of center-left, center coalition, or a Lapid surge, or something like Gantz having a, a new uh, life after October 7th, political life. And these are all possible, I suppose. But likewise, like Ben Veer and Smoch represent a real political block in Israeli society. It wasn't a fluke. Um, a lot of people like to think that like Trump was a fluke. I don't think so. I think we're we're seeing a real problem in Israeli society. And of course, like it's not like this is unique to Israel. Something that a lot of people also get bogged down in is this idea that Israel is a unique circumstance. I think the circumstances of the occupation are unique, obviously, in the way in which the settler colonial paradigm has been again and again rewarded by the international community. But like in India, a lot of people said, well, Modi is on the way out. Doesn't seem so yet. Uh, and the far right in the US are on the way out. Doesn't seem so yet. Um, and that's why organizations like DSA are important in the US, of course, but also why organizations like Hadash in Israel, which is the only Palestinian and Jewish party list to be in the Knesset, that's why they're being repressed right now. But that's why their presence matters so much. I may have my political disagreements with them. Uh, but they represent a real threat to this idea that you have to maintain an apartheid regime in order to have security. They articulate something different. Uh, and if there's a future, it'll be through people like that who showcase that there's a real alternative to be had. You mentioned Lapid there, um, Yir Lapid, who a lot of people see as the, I mean, a, a lot of pundits in the U.S. see as uh you know the the alternative. He's the he he could help bring about a two state him or Benny Gantz. But you know it's interesting. Even Yer Lapid said recently. I mean, he said he literally came out and said, I think to the Jerusalem Post, there is no occupation. I mean, he's openly said that. I mean, if but if that's like the figure that we think is going to bring about peace, I I just. I'm very skeptical at this point, even with uh, a, a figure like Lapid. Right. I think um, obviously we're very predisposed to having a negative opinion of my thing, but um, I don't, 
the main issue for me for Lapis seems to be that he has no real courage um, whatsoever. Uh, he he's certainly much more emi- like uh, flexible to American pressure where that exists in the rare moments that it does. But you might have seen that yesterday, Lapid, in response to this this kind of gambit that Netanyahu's on, where he's trying to juxtapose himself against the U.S. on what will happen after the war. He says there's going to be no Hamas stand or Fatah stand in Gaza because he doesn't believe in the Palestinian Authority being reinstated into Gaza. Lapid himself, instead of, say, taking a courageous stance and saying, no, the U.S. is right, we need to maintain our, our international image, we need to formulate a political solution, Lapid actually just concedes to the narrative that Netanyahu has. And he said outright, no one is saying that Abu Mazen needs to go into Gaza in the days after the war. Uh, he's he's conceding to this framework that Netanyahu has. He doesn't have the guts, so to speak, to actually challenge the leader of the state, even though he's supposed to be the opposition leader. And that's why I like to uh, I like to quip that the real opposition leader is Ayman Oda of Hadash, because he's the only one who's willing to articulate a real program for peace. And he's on his way out, actually. He's retiring. So after that, who knows who will be left in the Knesset for a real program. By the way, for my listeners, since I, I mentioned Lapid saying there's no occupation, I'll just cite my source for that. And it is a very right-wing pro-Israel source. But um, Jewish News Syndicate wrote a whole article about that in um, uh, November 23rd, back in 2016, he said this. Uh, Yer Lapid, former darling of the Israeli left, admits Palestinians aren't quote-unquote occupied. So, I mean, even, like I said, even Lapid seems to be very, um, I mean, he speaks a better game in some ways than uh, Netanyahu, but as you said, it's it doesn't go far enough. Right, and I think um, if I were to, a lot of people uh, will ask me some uh, when I talk about if I go on a panel, if I talk about what our job as Americans is, um, I essentially believe, and this is more broad than the particulars of a political solution. I have my preference. I'm a one-stater. I say so in one of the pieces in Jacobin. But beyond that particular question, what Americans are supposed to do is build the political coalition necessary to finally upend what we call the bias, the bipartisan consensus in Washington on Israel. And I, I wanted to get more into this, by the way, but yes, go on. Yes, this consensus has not existed forever. Um, it's largely a post-9-11 consensus. Uh, prior to that, you would have presidents from both parties, uh, including Reagan, including H.W. Bush, who had a red line of sorts. It wasn't very well-defined. For Reagan, it was the horrors of what happened in the siege of Beirut uh, in the 1982 war. Um, he pressured Sharon to uh, cease the bombing campaign as it was happening and turn back on water in Beirut. Something that uh, a, a siege that had eerie similarity to what we see now, although now is on a much grander scale. Um, in the 1990s, in the early 1990s, H.W. Bush, Bush's administration applied tough screws onto the Israelis in terms of settlements in the lead up to Oslo. We know this is possible, but we want to go further as Americans. We don't want to simply apply screws and then relieve them before anything actually happens. Oslo notably never promised a Palestinian state explicitly. 
And Rabin, in the lead up to his death, wrote privately to his aides that he did not believe in a Palestinian state. And this was after Oslo 1 had been signed over a year and a half before. We know that sustained political pressure is the issue. Uh, we know that unless, and this is primarily an American issue as well, the international community is relatively unified here right now on Gaza. It is the U.S. primarily, which is the patron of the Israeli state, both in military conditions, in terms of munitions transfers, tank shells, rifles, and so on, and also in diplomatic uh, support with the veto power of the UN and with whipping people at the General Assembly. If that were to be removed, and if the US were to instead reverse course and actually apply pressure for a political solution, the whole world's weight would shift in a way. And so that's the goal of a, an American campaign, I think, to upend this bipartisan consensus, to treat Israel like a country that you would treat any other, because right now we especially do not petition aid, remove aid, and then begin laying the foundations for what a peace process would actually look like. We know that South Africa, for example, only acceded to the end of apartheid because it felt isolated globally. And you can't have that unless U.S. support is changed in some way. So one thing I wanted to get into was, as someone who organizes, because I'm, I'm just a media guy, you know, but as someone who organizes, you know, I, I've noticed lately, well, I, I'll use this example. I, when I had your friend and my friend uh, Abe Silverstein on, there were, there were people that listened to that that I, I think are um, even harder left uh, than maybe Abe is on some of these things. And they may have disagreed with one or two things he said. Uh, and I feel like we have a lot of disagreements going around right now, right? We have, you know, one state versus two state, and we'll argue about that. And I just wonder, how can we organize in a way that includes the most possible people, despite maybe, uh, to put it mildly, some differences opinion of opinion on maybe one or two or, you know, three issues? Right. Um, I haven't had the opportunity to listen to what Abe said, but I'm sure he talked about uh, a variety of issues that I, we're very like-minded in a lot of ways, I would imagine. Um, and what we wrote in our dissent piece, I'm not sure if he talked about that then or if he went on after that. Uh, but in our dissent piece together, which we co-wrote, uh, calling for a ceasefire, we say towards the end that the ceasefire has to come first, regardless of what one might think the ideal political configuration is. But that in a way, paradoxically, this ceasefire call can help cohere a coalition capable of then litigating on those issues and then promoting a unified front on those issues. And I think you're seeing the practical effects of something like that beginning to build in the form of, say, uh, and of course I'm biased because I'm in the organization, but in, say, DSA's response. Because um, it's not just DSA is the issue. Uh, no Money for Massacres is primarily done by DSA, but we've been doing it in conjunction with uh, Adela Justice Project, with the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights, uh, with Jewish Voice for Peace, with If Not Now. Uh, these are both Arab and Jewish uh, organizations. Uh, we've also had civil rights organizations join in. And as of late, we've had unions join in. Uh, great support from the United Auto Workers. Uh, the United Auto Workers today, one of the local uh, like spokespersons 
just held a rally about an hour ago with Cory Bush for a ceasefire. And this was this was unthinkable 10 years ago, a political climate where unions are engaging in the terrain of politics, doing something more than just saying, well, we only speak for our rank and file here and there. Now they're actually getting onto the field. They're flirting with divestments. They're talking about how we need to save Palestinian lives. And it's obvious, of course, that the UAW doesn't have a position on one state or two states. What they're, what they're doing is listening to the rank and file on the necessary dignity of the Palestinian people, which is the first step. And I think, say, on a macro level, look at, look at Congress. Uh, I wrote in foreign, po uh, foreign Policy in July about how the trend line in polling works for Palestinian and Israeli sympathy in the U.S. And one of the things that shifts sympathy for Palestinians is the presence of pro-Palestinian people in Congress. Most obviously, Rashida Tlaib herself a Palestinian, like me, but also representatives of Casio cortez Bowman, uh, and then beyond that, some uh, not so explicitly socialist, but still progressive people like, um, I'm drawing a blank right now, Betty McCollum. Um, these are people who are building a, a block, so to speak. Uh, most of them are in the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Some of them aren't. But these are people who have a red line. They're saying, we, we now have a new stake here. And that's what we have to preserve and expand. That's the first step. Another issue with organizing. And so you're, you're Palestinian. Abe is um, from a Jewish background. I, I think right now, and this is just my perspective, what I'm seeing is um, I think both Palestinians and Palestinian Americans and American Jews that I, I personally know and converse with are both having various collective traumas uh, being activated, uh, not just since October 7th, but I mean, even before that, because I, I think we, there is a very real issue in my view with anti-Semitism in America. And I think sometimes that gets exploited politically when it comes to Israel-Palestine in a way that I actually think uh, diminishes, you know, the, the fight against anti-Semitism and, and hurts the cause of fighting it. But in any case, I think that there's many Palestinian Americans and, and also more broadly Arab Americans and American Jews right now that are having these collective traumas activated and they're in a very bad place. And I think it's causing people to maybe say things and do things that, you know, it, aren't necessarily always the wisest things to say. And I think there's a lot of tension right now. How can we bridge the sort of gaps? Uh, because I, I do think a lot of people uh, are right, rightfully upset about a, a lot of different issues. And I, I think uh, there has to be ways that American Jews and Palestinian Americans and Arab Americans can sort of bridge the gaps um, when it comes to these issues. Right. I think... Um, like what, what, seeing... I guess what I'm asking is what's your view on how we can bridge those gaps. Yeah, I think um, it's an interesting thing to experience inter-ethnic conflict in the U.S. in a way that hasn't I haven't really seen before. Like, obviously, say, the 2020 uprising in the summer uh, over George Floyd, that was an interracial uh, thing. But in that case, it was something that unified a lot of people, a lot of young people in particular. 
Um, and I think the same is true in this case, even though on the macro level, it doesn't seem that way. A lot of young Jews and a lot of young Palestinians and Arabs feel largely united insofar as there's a disgust at what's happening in Gaza. Um, but there's also, of course, real hurt about what happened on October 7th, what happens after this all ends, uh, a lot of disagreement there. And I think the answer, as always, is political organization and cultural organization, because a lot of people get bogged down in the hypotheticals. But for example, um, the NYC chapter of DSA has a great many Jews and Arabs in it. Um, it's obviously the most diverse place in the country, in the world, New, New York City. Um, but there you had Jewish Americans like Jeremy Cohen, a leader of the NYC DSA chapter, marching with plenty of Arab Americans and Palestinian Americans for a ceasefire. Political organization gives people a common goal and provides them with the framework for pursuing that goal. And of course, not all Jews and certainly not all Arabs in the U.S. are socialists. So DSA is not going to be the place for that for everybody. But building these structures for inter-ethnic cooperation against apartheid and for inter for a mutual democratic and free society. That's how we do it. And that means we have to challenge not just like the far right elements of Jewish Americans uh, like uh, society, like APAC, for example, or the, the elements of Palestinian American society that are inclined to say that anything and everything is on the table, but also build. We have to build, build, build. Something that uh, one of my, uh, the new co-chair of DSA, Ashik Sadiq, has talked about is we need to look to the streets, not to the tweets. That's something that he uh, quips about, which is very cute, I think. But it's true. You need to be able to build. And so something that Abe and I thought that was important about writing that piece together was that it's important to have a, a demonstration of Palestinian and Jewish unity on a goal. I just had one or two more questions. Um, of course. With regards to October 7th, um, I know a lot's been made of, oh, these initial reactions were uh, cheering it on or, you know, things of that nature. But do you think what I think it's left out of that is that I don't think people knew the full extent of what happened on October 7th until it became more apparent. And I get the impression that a lot of people were initially not even they, they didn't necessarily know about atrocities happening what they saw was the footage of you know people breaking through the fence and i i think that was a powerful image for people i don't know if you want to comment on that i think it was a powerful image um for me personally it was certainly a powerful image um i can't speak to like who was saying what in reaction to what of course but Something that, and I, I don't really know how to articulate it in a way that doesn't sound like, I, I say this with the utmost seriousness and with the utmost uh, aversion to flippancy. People have a tendency to isolate events. And what happened on October 7th had 
there were horrific things that happened, happened on October 7th, and they had horrific implications for both Israeli Jews and Palestinians. Of course, more disproportionately for Palestinians, and that's not a matter of moralizing anything, that's a statistical fact. But insofar as what October 7th was, we cannot talk about what October 7th was without talking about what Gaza was before October 7th. And so October, and Gaza was hell on earth. Um, and there are a couple of commentators who have likened it to rebellions in the antebellum South. Um, horrific scenes, but also outbursts of despair and also outbursts of like, of this, the fact that there was no political solution um, and no foreseeable end. And I think if we're going to make it so that we no longer have to litigate what is acceptable and what isn't, and those are important conversations, I think if we really want to stop this madness, we have to have a political solution. And the breaking out of the prison scenes that people saw and felt euphoria for were in large part, in my opinion, euphoria because they saw people clamoring for an end to it. And I think we all want to see an end to, or at least we who don't want it to happen again, want to see an end to the situation that made this possible. And that means ending the occupation. The thing that gets me is just how, I, I just feel like there's so many Americans that aren't plugged into these issues that I, I think some people have a very cartoonish view of um, the situation in Gaza, even leading up to October 7th and after, you know, I've had people say to me, um, not, not necessarily listeners of the show, but just people in my real everyday life, they'll say, well, you know, Gaza has buildings and, and, and like, I've seen middle-class Gazans in these videos and they'll, they'll sort of say this as if like, Oh, well the situation in Gaza couldn't have been that bad before October 7th. Right. And I'm just thinking to myself, are you, I, I just, I, I don't know what people think Gaza was like before October 7th because yeah. it wasn't nice and it wasn't good, but I think people just have this racist view that, that like, oh, everyone there must live in huts. You know, it, it's just, I don't understand the racism gets yes. to me. Do, do you see what I'm getting at? Like, because I've even had people say, well, if there's middle class people that have lived in Gaza before uh, October 7th, then, you know, it must not be that bad. It must not be a prison, you know? And I'm just like, it's such a, I'm just amazed by the things, the excuses people will make. Right. I think, um, oh, and I'm, I'm going to, I feel bad for drawing a blank on who, what her name was. Abe, Abe knows her name. Uh, many people know her name. This Jewish writer, wonderful writer, she wrote a piece for Jewish Currents or for the New Yorker or something of that sort. Are you talking about Marshy Gessen? Yes. Thank you. Yes. She wrote a piece. And if I understand right, if I remember right, I read it a while ago. She wrote a piece where she, she reflects, um, Upon the images of Gaza, upon this, this, uh, she uses the word ghetto, does she not? If I remember right, or is she, yes, this is what... and I'm, I'm, I will say, if Masha is listening to this, 
they pronouns just so everyone knows. Oh, ap- apologies, apologies. <laughs> My very humble. But yes, she, uh, they use the term. They they compared it to a ghetto. Yes. Yes, my my very humble apologies. I certainly know uh, how annoying that could be. Um, they led it to a ghetto, um, and this enrages a lot of people. Um, and this uh, this this idea that you could that you could even dare to to contextualize violence in that way and to contextualize Jewish history or Palestinian history in relation to one another. Um, and I think it's the opposite, actually. I think how how could you dare not to? How could you dare not to? see the humanity across the water that is like identity. Rashida Tlaib, I want to say a year or two ago, told a group of high schoolers when talking about the settlement enterprise that she couldn't possibly imagine uprooting all of these people in a one-state model because, or in relation to the idea of a two-state model, transferring all these people back in Israel proper. She said she couldn't imagine doing so because um, that would invoke memories or evoke memories of the Nakba to her. And that's a, that is a necessary component to understanding how to end this conflict, understanding how perpetuating violence back onto people after suffering it yourself does not solve anything. Um, Edward Said called us the refugees made by, made refugees by refugees. And uh, that's certainly our national circumstances and i think that's how we'll come to it's part of how we'll come to a settlement on the issue understanding what what has happened to the jewish people understanding what the israeli jewish nation has done to us and saying no more of it and in the context of gaza once this war ends we cannot go back to a ghettoized gaza an open air prison and i think that's where their essay shows immense moral clarity, immense bravery, and that is the framework for which we'll, from which we'll come to a proper conclusion to the conflict. In, in regards to the, the point I was making, though, the, yeah, I mean, how are we supposed to, res- I mean, maybe we don't even have to respond to them because it's already so ridiculous at this point, but when people say things like, well, you know, if they had libraries in Gaza before October 7th, how oh, bad sure, could it yes. have been? How, like, of how course. are we supposed to? I mean, because to me, of it's course. like I just roll my eyes in disgust. But, yeah, I don't know if we're, I don't know if we're obligated. I, I think we're, of course, obligated to delay if the individual in question is a person of power, um, like Tom Cotton, for example, the senator uh, who has often deployed such things. Like, how, how bad can it be if we've had? shopping centers if we have things in the West Bank that other nations have. But no, I think um, similarly to how some people will say, oh, Ukraine can't possibly have that bad under war if the if I'm watching people eat food as if nothing is happening. That's not how that's not how humans work. We go on as best we can under the worst circumstances. And regardless of how nice some buildings looked or how nice some food looked before October 7th, the fact of the matter is, is that nothing goes, nothing went into Gaza, nothing went out of Gaza without permission from Israel. Nothing flew out of Gaza. Nothing went out by sea of Gaza. Um, all also, it has, one of the highest, it has one of the highest unemployment rates in the world. I mean, also, since since October 7th and the bombing, 
I mean, we now have like an acronym, right? Wounded Child, No Surviving Family. I mean, the idea that this isn't like uh, just a horrendous humanitarian crisis, it just, you know, I don't know how anyone can deny that, you know, and the idea that, oh, well, they used to have a, a shopping center somewhere in, in Gaza. It's just, it's such a, it's a yes. bizarre line of thought. And I think, I think it, I don't think it's all, the, the everyday people I know that have brought that up, I don't think they're doing it in a Tom Cotton way. I just... I sometimes think that Americans are very isolated um, and have a very strange view of uh, other parts of the world. And it's it's driven by the sort of, I would say, um, there's a lot of indoctrination we go through with racism and whatnot. It's just a very a sad thing, you know? Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, that's, that's also true. A lot of people don't know, um, don't know, just they have views out of ignorance. Um, and so... Uh, of course, and this is natural because so many wars have happened to us where the American political media haven't even really considered our perspective. It's only up in, it's only been recently that you'll have people like Mohammed El Kurd, or you'll have people interviewed from Palestinian political parties or from uh, Palestinian communities here in the U.S. Or, or up until so, recently, you'd have uh, Mehdi Hassan. You know, although yes, it of seems course. like. It, they're and trying then, to uh, downgrade him a bit, but yes, deep, uh, demote him. It's yeah, it's certainly the average American, uh, for better and for worse, can't really be blamed for the misconceptions. Um, but, and that's that's why it's important to have organization and also patience, of course. So, um, we try to combat the misinformation where it exists. Very last thing here, um, sure. I was telling you before the show that, uh, I had some guests that were surprised when I had Rashid Halidi on at how angry he was. He sounded very angry when he was on my show. I mean, he and he was very angry. And uh, I just sort of was askance at, at that response. I was like, well, yes, he's angry. He's a Palestinian. He's seeing, you know, he probably has relatives in Gaza, you know, and and also, you know, memories of the Nakba are being yes. triggered. And I don't think the people that said, wow, he sounded really angry. It wasn't necessarily like, you know, they're like, oh, he he doesn't have a right to be angry, but it's almost implied in 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 their asking in, in weird ways. You know, like I I feel like at times Palestinians are expected to be perfect victims. Uh they're expected to always be calm, cool, and collected if they're going to speak, if they're given the privilege to speak and it shouldn't be a privilege it should just be you know it should be a right but i feel like there is this racist attitude that says you know well the palestinians always have to speak calmly they can't express uh, rage or grief and i was just wondering what you think of that issue because i i think it's similar to what a lot of black americans face at various times you know where you know if a black woman shows anger oh she's uppity you know and i i I, I don't even think people realize they engage in this kind of uh, internalized racism, but it, it definitely exists. And I, I wanted your perspective on that uh, as someone who's a Palestinian American. Yes. Um, I think it was Ajmi Bashara, a Palestinian citizen of Israel who founded Balad. Um, I, if I remember right, he said something along the lines of victims of the occupation aren't good people, they're victims. Um, 
people who are victimized are inherently righteous, uninherently good. They are people who just have a just demand, a just cause, and that is an end to the victimization. Um, any individual black person or a trans person or a Palestinian person who sees how the world has erected a, uh, a system that disadvantages them has a demand that's just, and that is an end to that system. Um, some of us are going to be very angry. I myself am very angry. I, I cannot say that in the last three months, I have not had a heated argument or a heated moment, even with some of my closest friends. Uh, I can't say that some of my Jewish comrades have not come to me and said that, uh, something I said may have been one way or another or something or vice versa. I've gone to them and said that something may have been one way or another. What is the case is that we have to, if, if we want people to be good, if we want people to be as good as they possibly can, then we have to end the systems that make us victimized because victimization is not romantic. Um, as you can see, it makes us desperate, angry, desperate, and inclined to lash out. Um, and so, and no one has to be good. Like you said, no one has to be good to demand dignity. Well, it's just, I mean, I, I can relate to it in a different way. And I'm not saying it's like a one-to-one -one comparison, but of like, course. Of course. Uh, so I come from a Catholic background. So, you know, I have met people, I mean, people don't realize this, but it wasn't that long ago when we lived in a country where, oh, you know, we're worried about JFK being president because he could have dull loyalties. And that was, that was a line used against him. And I have met people that are like very anti-Catholic still, you know, especially certain older folks that I think identify as Protestant. And, I, you know, when I hear really anti-Catholic stuff uh, and knowing what, you know, my grandparents went through who were Catholic, you know, it it upsets me. Like I have a visceral reaction to it. And I have, I have experienced that. But I mean, that's obviously, I don't think that happens as much for Catholics as it does for uh, Palestinians. But I, I guess what I'm saying is, even if you you just have to be able to put yourself in someone else's shoes we've all experienced uh various transgressions against our own identities that we belong to and yes. I, I just it aggravates me that sometimes people who have experienced that kind of discrimination uh whether they're catholic or if they're from another identity group that has experienced discrimination in the past or whatever Sometimes they don't recognize when it's being done to Palestinians, and that's very or, – or just Arab-Americans, to be honest, when it's done to Arab-Americans. I, I think sometimes people just don't see it, even if they can see it with their own group. Yes. Yeah. I, I think um, – I think it's, it's, a, it's a very – it becomes very loaded, but I think um, it's just important that – for us as Palestinians, uh, for our Jewish comrades, for our Christian comrades. And oh, and that's the, uh, I was going to say, um, something that a lot of people don't actually know because you uh, reminded me, something that a lot of people don't know. For example, Justin Amash, uh, that's who I was going to mention, a uh, Palestinian Christian. Um, there are a lot of Christian in this country who don't know that we have the oldest Christian community in the world, almost. Uh, the oldest continuous Christian presence in the world. Um, churches have been bombed into oblivion. Justin Amash has lost uh, family, uh, may they be blessed in heaven. That's, and that, in, you know, I have to be honest yeah. with you. I've heard that a lot from people. Is they'll say to me, "Wait, you mean 
when that when that church was bombed, they said I had people say to me, "You mean there's Palestinian Christians?" I thought they yes, were all Muslim, yeah. and I'm just like, "My God, the ignorance!" I mean, it's yes. not it's not intentional ignorance. No, but it's, it's like, not. The war on terror has uh, has orientalized the Middle East very even harder than it was prior to 9-11. Um, but yeah, and, and in Bethlehem, uh, a Palestinian city, uh, they've canceled Christmas, so to speak. They're not doing public demonstrations. Uh, if you look up, if any of your listeners look up Bethlehem uh, nativity scene, you will see that the uh, various uh, cross-confessional churches in Bethlehem have erected a nativity scene of a, of a baby Jesus wearing a kaffiyah and being under rubble uh, because for them, uh, Jesus is their, uh, their highest. And so at a time when we are under occupation and under bombardment and under brutal uh, apartheid, they identify with the Messiah who himself lived in a world under Roman power. So, and, and, and the solution to that is radical empathy, inter-ethnic cooperation, and uh, an end to the bloodshed. What does it mean to be Palestinian? And what I mean when I ask that is, I know people that will say, well, why can't the Palestinians go to, this is a Zionist talking point that I hear a lot from people, or people regurgitate it without realizing it, but they'll say, why can't the Palestinians go to any other Arab uh, state. Why do they have to be, you know, in this this land, Israel, Palestine? Uh, and I think people don't realize that there, there's been an ethnogenesis um, for the Palestinian people, and it, it goes back before 1967. That national identity, uh, the Palestinian identity, and I think people need to understand Palestinian and Arab don't necessarily mean. Uh, the exact same thing. It, it would be like saying that. Uh, I mean, Arabs themselves are not all the same thing. There's there's Lebanese Arabs. There's you know Palestinian Arabs. There's so I I think people really need to understand that Palestinian is its own identity. It's not. It doesn't simply just mean Arab. And in fact, you know, uh, very racist uh, supremacist figures like Kahana use this line of there are no Palestinians, they're just Arabs, uh, to try to, you know, squash the uh, aspirations of Palestinians who want self-determination. So I think people really need to understand that the Palestinian identity is, um, it's specific, it's particular, it doesn't just mean Arab. Yes. Um, there's a great book, I think also by Halidi, uh, called on Palestinian identity, if I remember right, something of that sort. It's not very long either. It's a pretty good overview. But for me, what it means, um, I think, is, like you said, ethnogenesis. And I think for us, and it goes back prior to 1948 even, it goes back prior to the Nakba, um, and understanding that we are a distinct group on that land um, who have a relationship to the wider Arab nation, of course. Uh, we speak Arabic. We are predominantly Muslim, although not all. And even in the Christian community also has a relationship to Arabic and all of the cuisine, the linguistics, the history. But for us, uh, I mean, something that Edward Said said in 1986, I think, in conversation with uh, Rushdie, is that um, we don't really think of like our struggle in an explicitly self determinative nature. We think of it as a 
as a struggle for return. Um, and of course, return takes forms, many forms, physical return, uh, symbolic return, the ability to return. Um, and so for me, for, as a child instilled in me very early on was my grandfather once lived in his homeland and was not allowed to return after being forced out. And my father can't return. And so it's up to me. And I hope it's in my lifetime that it happens. It's up to me to at least make it so that we can return. Um, up to me and my fellow generation of Palestinians. Um, and I think for us, what it means to be a Palestinian is to continue on because the Nakba didn't end us, the Nusba didn't end us, and the ongoing Nakba won't end us. And to achieve the dignity that we as a people have been not allowed by not just Israeli Jews, but also by Jordanians, the Lebanese, uh, the Egyptians, the wider Arab nations. And we will do that. That's what it means. I want to thank you again, Yassin, for coming on Parallaxes. How can my listeners keep up uh, with what you're doing? You're an uh, emissary of the night on uh, yes. Twitter X, whatever it's being called. That's <laughs> Twitter, yes. Um, thank you for having me. And I, I also just want to... Uh, if they are, if they do listen, I would like to apologize one last time. I'm also trans, so that's my, uh, I am. So apologies again, and thank you again for having me. Uh, shout out to Abe Silverstein. Hope you're listening. Uh, thank you. Next up, a conversation with Frank Barat, a longtime pro-Palestinian activist and filmmaker. We're joined for this conversation by special guest co-host Bassam of the West Bank Robbery Podcast. If you're unfamiliar with Frank's work, well, go on over to his YouTube page. He interviews a number of fascinating figures in relation to Israel-Palestine, including philosopher Judith Butler, UN Special Rapporteur Francesca Albanese, Israeli historian Ilan Pape, and many, many others. So, without any further ado, let's get right to it with Frank Barat as we continue the conversation about the Gaza War. Welcome back to the show, my co-host, Bassam of the West Bank Robbery Podcast, and also our very special guest, He's been doing so much work uh, on Israel-Palestine, and lately he's been interviewing everyone when it comes to Gaza. He's had Judith Butler on, Ilan Pape, and so many, many others. Uh, Frank Berat, a French activist, author, and film producer. He's also the coordinator, or was the coordinator, of the Russell, Tri Russell Tribunal on Palestine from 2008 until 2014. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing great, thanks. I mean, I'm doing, yeah, I'm doing okay. Just like it's been incredibly sort of busy in the last eight weeks yeah. since, I guess, uh, October the 7th. Uh, but, but, you know, I'm doing fine. Yeah. Frank, thanks, the guys. first thing I wanted to ask you, because I've been watching your videos, uh, especially as of late, the, the latest series you've been doing on the Gaza War, 
is really incredible. Just speaking to some of the best minds we have out there. Like I said, Judith Butler, Alain Pape, and many others. How did you first get involved in this issue of uh, Israel-Palestine, uh, Palestinian liberation, and uh, looking at the humanitarian crisis in Gaza that's been going on for years? It, it has a long history. You know, you helped edit that book in 2010, Gaza in Crisis. So this is not a new thing. Yeah, yeah. Two th- I, Sorry, I thought it's, it said 2010. No, 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 no. I just had to say the date again. It, it sounds mad that it's been so many years ago. Right, yeah. right. Was, so yeah. how, how did you how did you first become involved in this activism? Uh, I, I, I really tried to cut a long story short because I'm, you know, I've been asked this question quite a few times. Um, I think um, I like, like books. Noam Chomsky, actually, um, Understanding Power was one of the first, like, really sort of political book I read. Uh, but then, like, to again, cut a long story short, I, um, I traveled to Palestine for the first time in uh, 2007. And, um, you know, once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. Um, I don't know who said that. I keep saying it's Arundhati Heroy. I'm not entirely sure. But uh, that's how I felt. You know, I spent about two weeks there. And when I came back, I was like, there's no way I, I, you know, I can not speak about what I've seen on the ground. And uh, so I started, I started getting more involved with the Palestine Solidarity Campaign. I, I lived in London at the time, um, doing short videos, filming demonstrations, uh, doing interviews with people. And, um, and it led to uh, a couple of books and it led to the Russell tribunal in Palestine, which was then sort of eight years of my life traveling across the world, meeting some of the most uh, interesting and enlightening people I've ever met, I've made in my life. So uh, that's, that's that, you know, nutshell, nutshell. Yeah. For people that aren't familiar, could you talk about the Russell tribunal? Yeah, so the Russell Tribunal um, idea, it's, there's a long history of popular tribunals. You know, it started in uh, Vietnam, actually. Uh, Bertrand Russell, the English philosopher, started a, a popular tribunal. He said, you know, states don't intervene. Uh, legal institutions actually don't do what they're supposed to do. So we, the people, are going to do a tribunal on, on the Vietnam War. So that was sort of towards the end of the 60s. And then there was another tribunal on Latin America and, you know, Pinochet and, and all the sort of dictators in Latin America. And then, you know, a, a lot of sort of popular tribunals popped in all over the world, you know. And, uh, and after the ICJ, so the International Court of Justice, opinion on the wall, which said the wall that Israel has built in the West Bank is illegal and should be dismantled. And if you are a state party of the ICJ, you should do everything you can to dismantle the wall. And obviously nothing happened. Uh, and actually state, instead of dismantling the wall, I've, I've, I've helped Israel build more walls, you know. So, um, so yeah, the Russell Tribunal was a popular tribunal. It's like a, um, a court in a way. You've got jury members, you've got experts and witnesses from Palestine. And uh, I, our idea was not to focus on is, is Israel guilty or not. Our idea was to focus on who helps Israel to do what it does, sort of what are sort of third party complicities, corporations, UN, US complicities. So we did this for about, yeah, eight years in a way. 
That's fantastic. I think that's like, I think that has definitely filtered down into like the popular movements. Um, you know, groups like Palestine Action, I think, have taken a lot from that. Uh, and they're focused on like the Elbit campaign or even like the BBS movement with their like more recently like targeted campaigns and that kind of thing. I think it's had a you know pretty profound impact. I think it's a, it's a very viable strategy. Yeah, I mean, we we worked. I mean, in the tribunals, we had uh, civil society was always involved. You know, we uh, and we actually we the idea was also to give activists the the tools. You know, to help them give him give them some of the tools they they needed to to uh, empower them with like legal means and and also. Um, you know, practical means uh, of action. I know, Carl, you had a question that you wanted to ask about uh, France and how Palestine is, is uh, discussed there. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, we talked about my cousin uh, who lives in France and stuff. Um, he does some Palestine work there. Um, I don't know too much about like the French conception of Palestine or like how it relates to your society. I'm familiar with like, I love France for one reason. It's because, you know, they often dispel the empty land myth by how much they wanted the cotton from the fertile soil of Palestine and southern Syria during the Ottoman period. Um, but I do also know that France was essentially a killing field for uh, Palestinian political activists in the 70s and 80s and 90s, like the assassination campaigns, which I believe were done with, if not French help, you know, whatever. Um, wh what's it? What might be different than my experience, like the U.S. or like the Anglosphere? Like, how does France imagine Palestine? Where where does that fit into your political sphere? So, I live in Brussels, in Belgium. I, I don't know if you know, guys, but I actually live in in Brussels. Uh, and I anyway, apologize. I'm, I'm, I no, no, I, but that's cool. I'm French. I'm French, and but I live in Brussels. You know, but um, I um, I'm actually so happy. I don't live in France at the moment. I think France and Germany are probably maybe Germany's first and France a close second, the two worst places to talk about Palestine in the world. Um, the France is actually uh, hysterical when it comes to Palestine. Uh, there is obviously the Holocaust, you know, playing a big part of it. The fact that France, you know, did send with like General Pétain many, many Jews. Uh, to the gas chambers and stuff. But right now, uh, in terms of um, the space for expressing support for Palestine or um, is, is incredibly hard. I mean, it's changed, I've got to say, from October 7th, following all this crazy propaganda by Israel. I mean, slowly people, even with like, you know, they sort of blink, no, not blink, blinders on or whatever, how, if I say yeah. it. I've slowly, you know, the... the the truth is so obvious and it's so obvious that it's a massacre that a small window has opened for dissent. But I've been working very, very closely in the last two weeks with um, the cultural field in a way and French celebrities and artists. Mm -hmm. um, you know, no one wants to talk about Palestine. It's going to change. You'll see it very, very soon. We're preparing something very, very soon. Uh, and, uh, and, but it, it's it's just an incredibly tough place to talk about Palestine. It's really like hysterical. You, I mean, the media, you know, yeah, the discourse is it a career render wrong. in the same way that it can be like in the United States, um, or you know, get expelled from an academic institution? Is oh, it pretty look, common we, to like lose your yeah. job? 
we published a, a, a letter on, I think it was October 15th, about a week after October 7th, in L'Humanité, which is a French left newspaper. Uh, 93 names signed the letter, and, and um, I was involved in, in working on it. And so many people that had signed first, after a few days, asked me to take their, their names out really? of the letter, uh, following pressures. You know, they wouldn't say names and stuff, but following like, you know, film directors calling them, hey, you want to work again? You better take your name out. Following like people that, you know, are in charge of major sort of concert venues in France saying, hey, do you want to play again a gig in my place? You better take your name out. So it's it's very, um, yeah, it's very bad in a way. But I, I think hoped it would be a little bit better. I think it's changing. It's changing. And, um, you know, because I've worked with artists and stuff in the last few weeks, I see, I, I think it's it's about to change. About to change, like, in a way, uh, can we swear on your show? <laughs> Absolutely. No problem with that. All right. No, no, like, you know, fuck you. We're not going to remain silent anymore. The fear mongering the the pressures are not gonna you know we're not gonna remain silent anymore we're gonna talk one thing i really wanted to speak with you about is uh you're a filmmaker and on this show i cover film a lot i'm I'm a bit of a cinephile and this guy um, loves movies he knows so much about them i have i know nothing <laughs> i want to talk a little bit about um filmmakers from palestine because i don't think they get covered enough in you know film circles and uh you know, I had the pleasure of interviewing um, Darin J. Salam uh, last year about her movie, uh, Farha, which was on Netflix. And it was it was a, a coming of age story that happens during the Nakba. Uh, that movie made a, a, some waves because it got on Netflix. I know a few people that have seen it. I think it's a wonderful film. Uh, it's It's tough to watch, but I feel like a lot of people don't even realize that there is uh, a real culture of, of Palestinian filmmakers out there. And you've been involved in promoting those voices. Could you talk a little bit about uh, the world of Palestinian cinema? Yeah, we actually, I was um, one of the co-founder, I can't remember now, maybe seven years, eight years ago of the Paris-Palestine Film Festival. And um, and and then when I moved to Brussels, we created uh, some a festival we called Palestine with Love, which was with uh, my dear friend Anne Marie Jasser. I don't know if you know Anne Marie. She made like Wajib, Salt of the Sea. Um, she oh, was yeah. the sort yeah. of foremost female Palestinian film director. And um, and in a way, that's why I I mean I, I'm a I'm a film buff. I used to be a film buff before I had kids. Oh, one of them. <laughs> uh, um, I, I used to watch films all the time and actually rate them and write the names of you know directors and actors and stuff on my any anywhere really. And uh, when we organized the Par Paris Palestine Film Festival, I realized that there were so many incredibly talented filmmakers and screenwriters in Palestine with so many ideas. But because Palestine is not a state, there's no film fund or state film fund in Palestine. There's no support. And uh, they find it very hard to actually make their films. So about four years ago, with a friend of mine who's got money, which I don't have, um, we decided to create a production company. And 
uh, anyway, I, I'm the sort of networking guy, and he's the guy who can put money in films and stuff. So for the mm -hmm. for about four years now, we've um, we've tried to work on on films because I think the yeah Palestine cinema is inc incredibly rich, and uh, and actually I'm just sort of back from Athens where we shot the first fiction of uh, Mahdi Flayfell, a Palestinian film director who made, his film is on Netflix, actually. You should watch it if you haven't. It's uh, amazing. It's a documentary called A World, Not Ours. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a brilliant film. He, um, and he's made his first fiction, so we, we were involved in this. But yeah, there's, there's so much talent and so much stories and, and also so much humor. You know, so the, you know, the Palestinians and the films are filled with, uh, you know, humor, which is, um, which is great. It's a very ridiculous situation. You know, you got to find some some humor in it. Couldn't write this stuff. <laughs> if yeah. you were to make a, a recommendation for uh, listeners that wanted to get into, uh, dip their toe into Palestinian film, what would your recommendations be for, you know, what what type, what films from Palestinian filmmakers would you recommend? So I'm biased, right? But the one I just mentioned, A World Not Ours, I mean, I didn't produce it or anything. It was 2012. It's a documentary, but I think it tells so much. Uh, Madi was born in a refugee camp in Lebanon, in Ain el Helwe. So it's the, it's the story of Palestine. You know, your grandparents were kicked out in 48. You lived in Lebanon, and then they moved to Kuwait. And he's going back to Lebanon, sort of Ain el Helwe every year. And it's a very funny film, and it's, it's a documentary, and, and I just love it. I mean, I love Anne-Marie's film, Anne-Marie Jasseth, uh, Salt of the Sea, Wajib, um, and my brain is fried, so I forgot the two other ones, or one other one. Uh, Elia Suleiman, uh, The Time That Remains, uh, one of, not the last film he made, but the one previously, I, I, I loved the film. Oh, and Michel Khleifi, who is the godfather of Palestinian cinema, made uh, this most beautiful film, I think in the 80s, called um, Wedding in Galilee, um, which for me is, is, is a brilliant film. I mean, it's hard to, to find it, because it's uh, it's not on Netflix or anything, but it's it's a very beautiful film. And again, so many young Palestinian directors as well uh, are, are making incredible films. The Eighteen Wanted, um, it's a film that we showed, which was really incredible. Um, Amer Shomali, hey, my brain my brain's working. So um, yeah, there's so so many of them. You know, I've probably missed. You know, I'm really I've excited to hear so that you're working people. on some new fiction. Um, mm -hmm. There's, I don't know, I run into the problem where every time I try to recommend like a movie about Palestine, my number one sell is it's not that depressing, you know? Um, the, the only things that, uh, Return to Haifa, I just watched that last night, uh, the only uh, fiction that the uh, PFLP ever made. Uh, it's got everything a Warner needs at a cool 77 minutes, highly recommend it. Um, and like Valley of the Wolves. The, um, do you have anything to recommend in that regard? Anything that I could say it's not that depressing to people? Oh, uh, again, uh, in a way, there's so many of them, and because like I haven't really kept, um, I find it very hard to watch films anymore, just because I I just can't find the time. Uh, but um, um, let me think. Um, I mean, again, the few I've mentioned are really not depressing. You know, they are not, they're, they're about stories, sometimes they're sad, but it's all about also so much humanity and so much like, um, you know, there's, you know, so, so mood resistance and, and laughter. Um, uh, 
but let's continue talking and i'm sure some others will pop in and i'll no problem I'll, it, I'll it's let... hard that's what that's what my issue is yeah, it's yeah. hard to, you know? <laughs> yeah i wanted to ask you about your reaction to october 7th and then also the the just horrendous bombing campaign that has happened since then i know you had a very heartfelt conversation uh with judas butler uh who got criticized for the piece she wrote on october 7th uh but i i still think she's very much in the palestinian liberation camp and i think it's i think october 7th and then this bombing campaign it's it's just so hard to compute for people especially i mean the bombing campaign is claimed over twenty thousand innocent palestinian lives at this point how are we to how, how are we to compute everything that is happening and sort of not give up hope? Uh, do you, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, in a way, um, I, I just had also a, a great conversation. Was it on Friday? I think with Nura Erikat. I'm sure you know of Nura's name. Yeah. Nura Erikat. I know Nora. Yeah, she does. Uh, yeah. She's a lawyer, right? She's a lawyer and activist, and but she's been all over the media recently and. Uh, uh, for a new show, actually, I'm doing with Mondo Weiss. I don't know if you know Mondo Weiss. Oh, uh, love I've, I've had uh, I've had Phil and uh, others on the show. Yeah. Okay, so I'm doing a show with them of interviews called uh, Witnessing Palestine. It's um, it's not out yet. It's the the interview with Nura is the first show, and it's going to be out I think uh, tomorrow or Wednesday at the latest. And um, and so October seventh was. Look, I'm going to do like a Norm Filkenstein, right? October 7th, when I, I was actually <laughs> in London on a supposedly relaxed, no screen, kind of romantic weekend with my wife. And, um, and we woke up on the 7th and she showed me like on her phone a piece like kind of Hamas declares war on Israel. And I was like, what are you talking about? Let's go for a walk. You know, this is like one of those crazy articles. Well, what are they talking about? But then we checked again two hours after. And I still remember how shocked I was because I feel like, for me, it didn't make sense. For anyone who knows Palestine, who knows how Gaza is, is, is surrounded by a wall, a fence, you know, cameras, like, 1,000 Hamas Palestinians, whatever, you know, escaping Gaza with weapons declaring uh, attacking Israel just didn't make sense. I, I just it didn't make sense. I couldn't believe it. How, how did this happen? You know, but then when I digged into it a bit more, I uh, like Norman said, uh, before we heard anything about the thousand death or whatever, you know, it was extraordinary because it is extraordinary for whatever, milit like, you know, resistant fighters or whatever, without an army to, to actually dismantle the, the, the sort of supposedly most secure state in the world and, and take over, I think, 12 military bases in a couple of hours. And this was just something I'd never heard of. And I don't they think anyone... They were flying. They were flying. That's, mad. That's crazy. I, I was like, we fly now? What the hell is well, this? Well, not, not, not just that, but I, I mean... Yeah. Putting aside everything about the 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 tribe of Noah festival and and other aspects yeah. of this, I think what people first saw was the footage of the breaking through the fence. Yeah, and it was, I mean, for a lot of people, that was an incredible thing to see. Yeah, and it, and it is, you know, 
it's like you know the the jail the jailed breaking breaking free, and and, and also you quickly realized. I quickly asked myself, like, how many years, years of planning this must have taken? This is just the craziest thing. Uh, but then, obviously, we heard about the massacres. We heard about, you know, 1,200 deaths, I think, very quickly. I can't remember now. I can't put it into it. Was it the next day? Was it already in the evening? But I remember when I heard this number, I think 1,200 dead. Maybe the next morning, I couldn't believe it. I, I was I was trying to be rational, going like, "How do you kill twelve hundred people in a couple of hours with machine guns?" I was like, "So I I remember actually uh, uh, WhatsApping uh, Gideon Levy, the Harrods journalist, saying, "Gideon, how do you kill twelve hundred people in a few hours?" Like it, like Operation Castled, which was in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine. Israel bombed Gaza for three weeks and killed one, like 1,400 Palestinians. And I'm like, Hamas killed 1,200 in a few hours? Like, how do you make sense of it, you know? Anyway, there were like war crimes committed by Hamas. I think there's no question about that. But we've since learned that, you know, we understood very quickly, people that are involved with the topic, that to justify what was going to come next, a genocide in Gaza, Israel had to dehumanize the Palestinians like they'd never done before, right? Since you mentioned uh, Gideon in respect to that, um, you know, I know I know Gideon wrote a piece uh, where he sort of took Roger Waters to task for comments about October 7th. And I, I think emotions are very high right now. I mentioned Judith Butler wrote that piece and you you had a very heartfelt conversation with her about that. Um, is there any way we can we can bridge gaps right now? Because I I think there, I think there are people that were deeply traumatized by October seventh, but I think there's also people that are traumatized by what's happening now. Is there is there a way that you know um, we can bridge the gaps that have occurred since October seventh and now? I I do believe, actually, hundred percent believe that there is a way to to, to build you know, bridges between uh, whatever communities and people after what happened on October 7th. Uh, the Gideon Levy piece on Roger Waters, like I found it actually very surprising because I know they're pretty much friends. They know each other very well. So I was actually quite surprised, I, I have to say. I was like, why? I mean, Gideon, why don't you just call Roger and tell him like, hey, this is wrong. Well, you know, instead of just making it public, maybe they did talk and then he decided to write this, this piece. I, I, I just, uh, I know that's probably not the way I would act with friends. I'll just call them privately. And I mean, anyway. to be fair to Gideon, that yeah. I, yeah. the piece was not like just attacking yeah. Roger. I mean, I think it was very heartfelt on his part, but mm. go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know, but yeah, yeah. I w anyway, um, but, you know, since October 7th, I've heard October 7th was definitely a trauma. And also the way it was portrayed was traumatic for everyone and even more so for the sort of Jewish community. That's that's for sure. And uh, but the response, the response, the action of Israel in Gaza, the, the, the massacre, cold blood, cold blooded killing of, of people 
including their own hostages, bare-chested, waving white flags and speaking in Hebrew. People say, just imagine if they kill their own bare-chested white flag, what would they do to Palestinians? You know, so as, and I've felt, I've got friends in the US um, that have told me like, you know, when they started posting uh, on, on social media about, you know, October 7th was horrible, but we need a ceasefire. You can't just kill every Palestinians around just to justify what happened uh, on October 7th. They told me my, you know, some of my Jewish friends, they say not to talk to me anymore. They were like, that's it. You know, you, 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 you're not with us anymore. But slowly in the last few weeks, they've told me they start getting back to me and say, actually, October 7th was a massacre. It was horrible, but there's nothing justifying what's happening now in Gaza. So I think, and in a way, I'm not sure if you can say that Israel is like shooting itself in the foot because it seems like they've done this in 2008, they've done this in 2012, and we always think, you know, they went too far. But it just this time feels a bit different. This time it feels like, feels like they've gone way above anything anyone could have imagined. And in total impunity, like really shooting Palestinians like ducks, you know, and, and bombing hospitals. And, and also the propaganda is actually oh an insult to anyone with a brain, even more so, a, you know, journalists. You know, the level of ridiculousness of their propaganda, honestly, it's been, you know, remember the HQ of Hamas inside, uh, our, under Al-Shifa Hospital? So the military HQ of Hamas, and then they found like four AK-47s and they're like, here it is, we found it. Like crazy, crazy stuff, you know. And I think people see through it. I've been really troubling to reconcile how bad the propaganda is. Like, I don't think the Israeli education system has degraded that far. I don't understand why it's so bad. Uh, a friend well, of mine- You, you have to remember a lot yeah. of the propaganda isn't even aimed specifically at, at Israelis. It's, it's, there's a lot of propaganda that's specifically aimed towards the Western audiences. Yeah, but that's still not as good. You know, I'm, a friend of ours, uh, JG, he said that he thinks Gaza is still not secure enough to send anybody with an MFA into it. That's the only thing that I've thought of. Well, I mean, you literally had an Israeli official. I think he was like the official for um, like Arab affairs in Israel or something. I mean, but he he was literally promoting the Pollywood conspiracy theory. And I've actually seen like major figures in the U.S. Uh, like that that Hollywood director Eli Roth promote this Pollywood conspiracy, and it's it's just That's, so yeah. racist. Oh man, I mean, racism. We haven't mentioned this racism. You know orientalism whatever you want to call it it's you know how many times we've heard the arabs don't consider don't like life the way we do like life and that's why <laughs> they make 10 children this way they can have five children marches and then it, it's fucking sickening honestly it's uh it's gross the the images of like the palestinian husband dad with his baby dead when they were saying oh it's actually a doll it's not a baby then he was like no it's a baby you know like and the you know the the stuff they picked from a, a Lebanese film, yes. and then they show like oh it's actually you know crisis actors in Palestine doing this stuff like man the level of I don't know actually if you listen to the interview I did with Nourid Peled, who is an Israeli uh, author and uh, she lost her daughter in 1997 to a Palestinian suicide bombing uh, in in Jerusalem. Her daughter was called Smadar, but is uh, Nourid. Nurit since then has been um, 
one of the foremost critics of the Israeli government, but she's also studied uh, Israeli school books in the education system. And she said that from the earliest age, she wrote a book about it called, I think, Israeli school books, whatever, about Palestinians. Mm -hmm. From the earliest age, when you're an Israeli, the Arabs are the enemy. The way the books, the way the color, you never see an Arab fisherman, you, you always see an Arab with a gun. So the, the, she said like the Israeli, actually her words were the Israeli education, edu education system teaches you to kill Palestinians. So then when you're 18 and you get an M16 and you go to Hebron and you see them, you shoot at them. And that's why I also think why they're shooting at everything that moves in Gaza right now, because Israelis are scared shitless. Even soldiers, they're so fucking scared. You know, they are in the territory of the monsters they've been told wants to kill, you know, yeah. want to kill them forever. So they shoot everything that moves, including Israeli hostages. It's just mad, you know. Given the, the nature of what's occurring now, I mean, the, the level of death we're seeing, not just from bombing, but also from just uh, the, this, the infrastructure has crumbled. You know, it wasn't great before. It's, it's even worse now. There's lack of food, lack of resources. Can you just comment on the nature of the crisis in Gaza? And also, how do you maintain hope at a time like this? Because I think a lot of people feel helpless, especially, you know, people that care about this topic in the U.S. They're just seeing a government that doesn't do anything to stop this madness. And I, I think a lot of people feel very hopeless right now. You know, these conversation I've had on YouTube since October 7th, actually very selfish it's a way for me to to remain hope hopeful you know and uh, and i think um yeah the level of i mean we were talking about it with uh, judith you know the we are in a state of collective shock and trauma right um people the level of destruction uh, of killing um, the images you see of children, orphans, missing limbs is just too much to take. Um, and actually, I've, I don't watch any of these videos. I just, they just like break me after two seconds, you know. But, uh, but also, there's so much beauty, you know, since October 7th. I mean, I live in Brussels. I think on October 8th or October 9th, actually, we were in a, in a place in Brussels with 200 people. I'd met, I knew 10 of them. People from all walks of life stopped everything they were doing for like direct action, demos, making flyers, making flags, you know, uh, occupying places and stuff. And you see, what was it, nearly 800,000 people in London a few weeks yeah. ago demonstrating and in Cape Town and in, in Delhi and in, you know. So, you know, the fact that we see that, like, first, like, we're not alone, you know, there is... Um, lots of people around us that actually feel the same and feel this sense of injustice. Um, again, it's important to remember, like, look at the UN General Assembly vote, right? 150 vote for, it's, it's only the sort of former colonial powers pretty much, and it, even though France uh, voted for a ceasefire as well. And, and another thing, you know, Hamas being a terrorist organization, you know, you've, we've all seen like the videos of like pretty much every single mainstream media journalist asking any Palestinian, do you condemn Hamas? Is Hamas a terrorist organization? 
I checked. Yeah, I mean, I've seen interviews where they'll ask a a Gazan woman, you know, who just lost like 10 family members. They'll say, do you condemn Hamas? No, I was, I was, I checked recently. Oh, how many actually, how many countries say Hamas is a terrorist organization? So it's about 30 in total in the world. There's 193 countries, 30 countries say Hamas is a terrorist organization. And it's the same, France, the UK, you know, Germany and so again, we see that we're talking about imperialism, colonialism, and these former colonial powers that you know have created this mess and that um, don't own it, you know, and just are making everything they can to continue this madness. Before we close out, because I know we're short on time, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm in an uphill battle when I talk about these issues because people who aren't already invested or interested in in the topic of Israel-Palestine, they just don't know the basics even. You know, I've had to explain to people that there is no actual recognized sort of Palestinian state. There's just these these disputed territories that are occupied. Uh, So what do you think the biggest misconceptions that the general public has about Palestine are what myths about Palestine need to be busted open? I think it's very easy. And actually, Ilan, that you've interviewed, I think, a few hours ago, uh, wrote a book, right, called The Ten Myths of Israel or something, where he just you know, de- debunks them one after the other. For me, we have to, the, the, the mental switch we need to have is that we need to stop thinking at Israel-Palestine as this conflict between two people who want the same land and they're fighting over the land. You know, Once we understand that it's actually a struggle for freedom, justice, uh, uh, and liberation, and that Israel is actually a settler colonial state, and they very proudly say so since 48, you know, the first Zionists were saying that our inspiration comes from, you know, European colonial powers. So once people, anyway, this switch is like, once you understand it's a struggle for freedom and justice, everything else is going to make sense like very quickly, you know, as long as you think, oh, this is like a 3000 years old conflict between two people who fight over the same land, uh, you gonna, you, you, you letting yourself open to receive all this myth and propaganda, you know, and you know what, actually, I think that what's driving, I'm not gonna say Israelis, but the Israel government, the Israeli army mad is that, you know, a land without a people, for people without, without a land. land. Yeah, you got yeah. it, yeah. Um, was the the original lie, right? They knew it was a lie. They arrived in Palestine in the you know late 20th, early sort of, you know, late eight, 19th, early 20th century. And they saw people, you know, Jaffa was a bustling cities full of like trade and farmers and, you know, and, and fishermen. And, um, but the original lie, they probably thought as like a settler colonial power that they could slowly either ethnically cleanse the Palestinians, bomb them, drive them away. And once, you know, one day the Palestinian would be forgotten completely, you know, but they don't, they're still there. They remain in Gaza. They remain in the West Bank, despite the bombings, despite the, the, you know, arbitrary arrestations and stuff. So I think that's what driving in a way the, Israel, you know, it's like a lion in a cage and he's like, they're going 
completely out of that, you know, completely bonkers, really, right? Um, um, and, uh, but I mean, maybe Ilan said that, you know, Israel is going to actually self-destruct because you can't actually build a state, a country on hate. At one point, it's going to crumble. Um, and I'm not saying Israel is going to distract itself, like disappear, but, it, you know, the the legal framework, we haven't talked about apartheid, you know, as is going to fall one point or at one point or another. I don't think, uh, you know, um, oppressive states uh, historically have, have lasted, you know, for centuries. At one point, they collapse because you can't build a state, you know, on, on oppressing another people. Yeah, I recently had a Rashid Halidi on and Rashid said to me, you know, this isn't even really good for Israeli Jews, um, you know, a system in which your idea of security is based on making another population, in this case, the Palestinians, permanently insecure is just going to lead to disaster for everyone, wh whether you're an Israeli Jew or a Palestinian. And uh, I guess what I wanted to close on was, you know, you've said in the past in regards to Israel, and this ties into what you were saying, I have nothing against the people. So you're, you're talking about just Israeli citizens. You said nobody has to die, just the system. Can you maybe explain more what you mean by that? What is this system? And, you know, what is the ultimate solution to this, this issue? And what will bring about a lasting peace where no one really has to suffer? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Ilan, I don't know if you asked this question to Ilan, you could probably answer a lot better than, than I do. But, you know, we, we just said it, you know, once, you know, if, if you oppress a people, a people's going to resist this, you know, that's, you know, historically, it's always been the case, you're going to resist. And if, why won't Israel really try peace, you know, like for real, why would, I mean, I don't know if you've heard the Israeli ambassador to the UK a few days ago, her video went viral. <laughs> Oh my God! They're not sending there will be no two state. I think is yeah, what she she's said. She's yeah. so bad. Like, they took it for granted. For they just sent the worst person to the UK. She's not even trying. You know, oh my God! Better. That's the thing, and that's what I was saying. They they're going mad. They're sending people that are complete like idiots. You know. Yeah. I mean, she's a diplomat. She should be like pragmatic. She should avoid questions. She just said there won't be a Palestinian state. So try it. Give them the state. Give them freedom, give them an airport, give them trade, give them... And then we see, you know, but you've never tried it. Then if you go, if you want to go down to like the two state or the one state or, you know, we all know that the two state idea has only abled Israel to build more settlements, you know, and, and you know, ethnically cleanse more Palestinian people, steal more land, steal more water resources. So the idea would be a true democracy, right? Israel de facto controls all Palestinian lives in Israel-Palestine. They control the West Bank, they control access to Gaza, they control population registry. So give everyone the vote, give everyone equal rights. And then whatever it becomes, would it be like kind of South Africa post-apartheid? We don't know, but then, yeah, equal rights for Palestinians and Israelis living in historical Palestine from the river to the sea uh, would be a solution. And you'll probably need like restorative justice and the, the processes you had in South Africa. 
but it'll also be freedom for Israeli Jews, you know, as you said, you know, I think, you know, freedom for the Palestinians is freedom for the Israeli Jews. Um, I, I do believe that. I was just going to say real quick here and then we'll wrap. Uh, you mentioned that that UK ambassador, you know, it's not just her, even even like someone like Isaac Herzog, who in, in the Western media here, he gets portrayed as sort of the he's the centrist. He's not like Netanyahu. But even he came out and said there are no innocent Palestinians. And I'm like, I mean, some people really are going crazy, it seems like. I know we're wrapping up, but uh, it's the fact that people were shocked that uh, the Israeli ambassador said there won't be a Palestinian state is like you haven't been listening. You know, they've always said that there'll never be a Palestinian state. You know, the, the Likud Charter, uh, like Netanyahu party, says there's never, there'll never be Palestinian self-determination. And it's like in the 90s, you know, um, every, like Ben-Gurion said, actually Eretz Israel, so actually from the river to the sea, is the Jewish state. It's not a Palestinian state, you know. So it's always been the case, but now they're so brazenly, brazenly, you know, the level of impunity has created these kind of people that they don't even realize what they're, what they're saying, right? And they don't even care. But I think it is backfiring. I, I've, I've got the, the feeling that this time it's just with the crazy far-right government they have, it's, it's really not going to work anymore. I hope so anyway. I want to finish on hope. I hope so. Yeah, I'm very optimistic as well. Hey, Frank, I know we need to let you go, but how can my listeners uh, keep up with your work? Um, I actually have just started working for the PIPD, which is the Palestine Institute for Public Diplomacy. They're based in Ramallah, and they're working on uh, various sort of, um, you know, um, advocacy, media and stuff. Uh, but otherwise, I'm on I'm, I'm only on Instagram. Uh, I'm like for Frank Barrett, and I'm on YouTube. Um, I can't know. You have to type Frank Barrett on YouTube, I guess. And, and yeah, it's and just his me. name. I highly recommend the YouTube channel. Hey, thanks again, Frank Barrett, for coming on Parallax Views. Thank you so much. Bye, guys. Thank you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. If you listen to this whole episode, please give a listen to. The West Bank Robbery Podcast. Thank you, Bassam, for joining me to co-host the second segment of the show. And of course, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, I really need your support on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Should have some bonus content up before the end of the month, namely some outtakes from my conversations with Mark Ames and David Hendrickson. So you'll get those goodies for the Christmas season if you join on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallax views. And with that being said, Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views.
the way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.